Hey, everyone, folks are uh, filtering in, so I'm going to start in maybe two minutes. Gonna give it like uh, one more minute and then we will get going. Thank you guys for joining. All right, so this is uh, Single-Minded Conversations. Thank you guys for joining. Um, this is a show I just launched, and this is going to be a potentially weird episode of it. I'm not sure it's going to work. Uh, I don't want anyone to get the sense that this is like what the show is normally going to be because uh, it's not. It's usually going to be much more interview-driven, um, a lot more taking questions on general subjects than focusing on criticism, uh, I do already have an interview scheduled with Batya Ungar Sargan. She is the uh, author of Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. I don't like that title. It makes it sound like a culture war screed, and it's a much more interesting and good book than that. But that's uh, December 14th at 6 p.m. on this very channel. I also have uh, interviews penciled in with um, an expert on academic freedom, an expert on youth gender dysphoria, an expert on police use of force. Uh, I anticipate I'll be able to schedule those pretty soon. And I think that's like a pretty good use of this channel just to sort of bring interesting people here and, and let people ask some questions and I'll talk to them a little bit. But the point of this episode is to see what happens if I just give people a platform to disagree with me. Um, so I don't know how many of the people in the room here have a question or have some issue they want to raise with me. I do have a backlog of a few I could start with from the Twitter queue. If you want to disagree with me about something, just get in the queue now, hit the little button, um, and we'll go from there. I will start with a Twitter one, and I hope some of you guys will get in line to take calls. All right, here's a question I had from uh, – oh, also, I need to make sure that I have enabled – yeah. All right. It's enabled. Okay. First question. This is from uh, Wanda Maximoff Supremacy at once Merck, like mercenary on Twitter. Uh, honestly, the one I like the most, meaning the criticism they like the most is that you tend to ignore the right. I know it's because you know you can't make a difference there, but still as a fan of your work, I'd love more of your thoughts on the right. Um, this has been something I've sort of gone back and forth on and the writing I did in like 2015 and 2016 definitely criticized the right a lot more. I was, my mug was featured on the front page of Breitbart because I wrote a story about how they sort of ruined this woman's life about over a bad joke she made. And I did a lot of stuff on sort of fake news, the Mike Cernovich ecosystem. I've definitely done more criticism of the left in recent years. I think that's largely because I don't think there was any sort of shortage of coverage of, of issues on the right or of Trump. And I think I probably developed a certain amount of Trump fatigue and felt like I didn't have the ability to say anything interesting about it. I think I can say interesting and useful things about other stuff. I also think that like for a political tribe to have internal critics is pretty important. And um, of course, if I was going around saying I want, the left to be eviscerated or I want Trump to be president, I, I think that would be a fair knock on me. But the question of how much time you should spend criticizing the left or the right, I, I don't really have a good answer to that. And I don't, I don't know. I just, I think most of my work stands up and is written in good faith. So um, I guess that's my response to that. I do think there's a huge amount of crazy stuff going on the right, especially in the right fake news ecosystem and just the number of people who who think Trump won is horrifying, but I just I find most of that stuff to be well covered and to get a lot of 
you know, there's just so much on it in mainstream outlets. So their entire sort of um, desks devoted to right wing misinformation. So yeah. All right. So people should get in the queue and actually ask me questions. I will keep doing the Twitter ones, but they're going to run out eventually. This is from Liam Bright at last positivist on Twitter. Liam is an excellent follow and I highly recommend um, you follow him. He's just a very funny guy and a very smart guy as a philosopher. Okay. In general, I think there's a broader thing though, which is hard to spell out. You've defended the role of nerd pedant, that's capital N, capital P, as good for the media ecosystem, especially when it's prone to evidentiary, evidentially dubious enthusiasms. I agree. But my outsider's sense is that at this point, various interpersonal vendettas between you and broadly, some pro-trans activists and academics have heavily shaped where you direct your nerd pedantry. Everyone is, of course, hey, is someone up? I just heard a weird feedback thing. Yeah. Everyone is, of course, entitled to be interested in what they're interested in. But I would be interested to know whether, on stepping back, you really endorse your own relatively high degree of focus on the failures of life like id poll left that's identity uh, identity politics left enthusiasts i know it's more than just college kids but i still really doubt they warrant the degree of focus especially considering that even if your peculiar style of nerd pedantry is a relatively unusual take within the sphere the general media environment is full of people dedicated to documenting their excesses and errors so it's not like that wouldn't happen i think when i wade into like the culture war stuff it's because there are some questions there i'm really interested in um so so one of the pieces on my newsletter that got the most um attention or, or most views was, was about like the first iteration of the dave Chappelle controversy and and i just sort of explained dave Chappelle's case which is that there aren't necessarily clear necessarily clear rules about what you can say and what you can't say and that to the extent there are rules, they do seem to be handed down by highly educated liberals and often liberal white people. I find that question interesting of, of why some of the stuff he's done doesn't cross the line. He's, he's made fun of crackheads. Uh, he's done some very offensive stuff, but one set of jokes suddenly seemed to cross a line that had been invisible before. I, I think that stuff is interesting to debate and to talk about, especially Chappelle's a bad example, obviously, because he's not he's not getting canceled. He'll always have a, a good career. But I do think there's increasingly examples of of sort of arbitrary rules that snare the average everyday person who doesn't have a social media platform or a way to defend themselves. And I, I hear from some folks who that's happened too. Um I think Liam's point about getting caught up in like interpersonal beefs is important because when you do that, it's going to distort your writing. And I, I'm worried about that. Um, I feel like when that has happened, it is usually in the context of me defending myself from what have been some like pretty intense, I would argue, misrepresentations of my work. And this is why I wish people would get in the queue so I could actually hear people's critiques of my work uh, via voice where I couldn't wriggle out of it. But I think there's a risk that if you if you fight with a group of people that that'll cause you to cover the issue differently. I I wish there was an example of like what I've done differently because of or as a result of Twitter bullshit. I, I think when I cover this issue, uh, the trans stuff, it's usually in the context of youth gender dysphoria and treatment and puberty blockers. And this is obviously a raging subject right now. You have a lot of states trying to ban it, um, which I'm against. I've, I've written that. You have a lot of parents. They reach out to me for advice, which, of course, should horrify you if, if you don't think my take on this is right. And I don't give them advice. I refer them to others. But the number of emails I get should tell you something about how much interest there is in this issue. And and when I'm writing these pieces or debunking what I view as bad mainstream coverage, I don't I don't really view it as a part of um, a personal vendetta, frankly. But uh, yeah. Oh, I would, I would also just disagree with, with Liam's claim that the general media environment is full of people documenting the excesses and errors. I do think there's like an ecosystem of like rabidly anti-politically correct journalism. So, so if an Oberlin kid has a meltdown on video, Breitbart and every major right of center outlet will, of course, ruin that kid's life over it. I think there's a lot of attention paid to that stuff. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of attention paid to giving a nuanced account of, of some of the issues I write about, but 
All right, guys, give me one sec. Just want to check one thing. One of the, um, just this is sort of useful to show how the kinds of feedback I get that maybe aren't as visible. One of the responses to my tweet was by someone who asked how how could I possibly support putting kids on puberty blockers and hormones? And people would be surprised how many emails I get from people who are convinced that this is a pharmaceutical conspiracy theory or it's a attempt at genocide. That is a word that's actually used against gay kids. Um, there's like a lot of misinformation floating around in that sphere too. My overall stance on this hasn't really changed. It's just, I, I think there's a subset of people who won't really be able to live functional, decent lives with dignity without that medicine. And I think that the whole question to me isn't whether the medicine should exist even for kids. It's it's how we can make sure people benefit from the most and what the diagnostic criteria should be because 12 and 13 year olds don't and aren't going to have medical autonomy. Um, so, yeah. Daniel Walters at Daniel L. Winlander. I get concerned that by focusing so much on what you see as excesses of the trans rights, anti-racism racism movements, the result can end up downplaying the serious bigotry that these communities face. The jocular tone can also backfire when you're dealing with some of these issues. Um, jocular tone is just sort of my style. I, I make jokes about horrible shit all the time, but it, I, I, I recognize that critique. And especially if someone was coming at me, my work new or from a skeptical place, it might not come off well. So I think that's worth me keeping in mind. Um, I think I get concerned that by focusing so much on what you see as the excesses of the trans rights, anti-racism movements results can end up downplaying the serious bigotry that these communities face. So I think the, maybe the most salient example is that Katie and I sort of went all in on a critique of Robin D'Angelo. We did one episode just sort of tearing about her book, which we both thought was awful. And then Katie did an interview with someone who sat through one of her trainings and found it like genuinely cult-like and humiliating. I recommend both those podcast episodes. I think they're good. Is Robin D'Angelo like a, an actual exemplar of the anti-racist movement? Am I, am I really criticizing anti-racism per se when I criticize Robin D'Angelo? My, my whole argument has been that a lot of these interventions don't actually help the communities they claim to help. Uh, and, and this thing of where if you criticize one aspect of it or one idea, you're criticizing the whole thing at large is pretty common. I mean, there, there was a brief big fad about police abolition and police defunding. And and you could be accused of not having the right views on racial justice or, or social justice for being against police abolition or police defunding. Meanwhile, those, those view policies don't pull well at all among the black community. So I think there's like this weird thing where just like one idea comes to be seen as a microcosm or, or um, it's a litmus test. If you criticize Robin D'Angelo or Ibram X. Kendi, you're not on the right side of the anti-racism movement. The question of like whether this is the direct quote, whether that ends up downplaying the serious bigotry that these communities face. I'm not sure I see the connection because I don't see a Robin D'Angelo training as having anything to do with the actual bigotry that, that leads people to be mired in poverty for generations or to lack access to housing or jobs. It, it's just so far removed from that and such sort of a professional managerial class papering over of real problems and justifying those problems that this is again, <laughs> I'm not going to harp on this, but, but that's the kind of like follow-up question I could ask. Uh, if people would take me up on the invitation. Oh dude, I can, I had complete Meg. I'm going to uh, unmute you. I didn't see there were a few people in the queue. I really apologize guys. Meg, get back in the queue. I found out last night, the button, they're, the designers are fixing this, but the button that looks like, thank you, Meg, I'm going to jump you to the front if I can. Um, why won't it? The, uh, the button that makes you, the hang up button is very similar to the unmute yourself button, so be careful which one you pick. This is a known issue they're working on. I'm going to try to take Andy. 
Meg, there we go. Can can you hear me? I can. I'm sorry oh. about that. Okay. Wow, that is a really confusing interface. Um, <clears throat> basically, I, I I do like your work, so it's not like a total hater call, but um, a little bit of hating is okay. <laughs> yeah. So obviously, you know, you you felt like whatever perspective was missing in journalism, so you create your own space with Substack and things like this, and obviously, I seek things out like that because I also believe there's like missing parts of the story or there's you know there's there's bias so then i seek out these other sources but by doing that in a way isn't that still a bias so like yeah how do you truly make sure that you're consuming information and news that tells the full story and then you have the added um <laughs> i mean i guess it's a hater thing but i don't mean it in a way but like I would have to pay for your your Substack, Substack. and I get like the free previews, and you know I just I don't have enough money to like purchase every single yeah. subscription. But that means just by nature of finances, I'm not getting the full story. So, and that's not your fault per, per se, but I think that's something that I mean, what what's your response to that? How do you you know your first thing is how do you make sure that you're consuming full perspective? How should everyone do that? And like, do you think? In a, in a way you're contributing to sort of siloed information and, and paywalls that prevent people from seeing information, things like that. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a good question. If you send me a message after this, I'll, I'll email you. It, it's funny. I, I have a, what I think is a relevant paywalled Substack article about this very question that just went up today. And it, it was about <laughs> the question of audience capture. And that's when, so if you, if you start writing about like, use gender dysphoria from a quote unquote heterodox perspective, you will get emails from a certain type of people. And some of it will just be normies, but you'll get a lot of emails from people who might have slightly more radical politics. And they're very happy to hear like someone like you who's seen as a mainstream figure starting to take their side. And I think if you sort of listen to them and, and you pay too much attention to them and you're, you're too affected by the fact that other people are criticizing you, I think a lot of the people on this call have probably seen people fall down pretty dark ideological rabbit holes and, and come out the other side, like a, a little bit crazy. And I mean, is that sort of what you mean by the siloization? Yeah, but even, I mean, yes, that's, that's a concern, but even just like, even if you're not a crazy person, you know, there's um, I think that the most obvious example is like, there are some people on the Rittenhouse trial you know, they, they, they aren't crazy. They just see the mainstream media and they like hear about it and they think it was, worse than it was and then they realized later on that maybe there was a valid case for self-defense but the point is you almost have to seek out that information and and then of course if you seek out information you're probably going to seek out the sources that you agree with most so it's just like how can you actually be a well-informed person yeah when when if you want to see different perspectives you have to you have to seek it out you know what i mean like no, it's, it's it's really hard. And and I mentioned this last night, but the, the difference between the best and the worst stuff published in like the New York Times is shocking. And there's journalists there who I would trust to tell any story. And there's journalists who uh, I think get stuff wrong all the time. So I think it used to be either either journalism was better before, or maybe I just grew up to the reality of it, but it used to be, I could just list off a name of outlets and you can basically trust anything written in them. I, I just don't think that's the case anymore. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of it too, is just like, what's going to generate the most clicks, but that doesn't mean it's going to be, I mean, that's, that's why there's so much inflammatory headlines. Cause that's going to get the clicks, even if, you know, and I'm, I'm guilty of it. Cause I'm like, Oh, that's so stupid. I click yeah. it. <laughs> and that supports that kind of journalism, even though I disagree with it. Yeah. Um, um, so. Well, thank you. I mean, Meg, do you think I, I, I addressed your question? I don't want to kick you off unless I... No, <laughs> yeah, you can. Well, I don't think you answered it, but I think it's just a really hard, like a hard thing to answer. And like, to, to the point that this is my criticism of you. It's like, I feel like you start your own... You feel like what's missing, so you've created your, your own outlets. But by doing that, you've created your own silo. Um, so sure. Like I, so I, I, I... But I'm of two minds about that because it's, it's much more journalism's in shambles and i'm now making a much better living than i would for just about any mainstream outlet i i wish mainstream media could put my Substack out of business but there's there's a niche there that people are responding to you know <laughs> yeah no totally all right you can kick me off but yeah that was my thank you myself. i realize I, I sound a little bit like a drug dealer it's not my fault man it's the <laughs> it's the supply the demand side thank you Meg. <laughs> all right bye. pat i hope you have a meaner criticism 
No, mine's unfortunately a little mild too, because I definitely consider myself a member of your audience. However, someone who came a, like a little bit more from the right, I'm a political partisan by no means at all, but I kind of wanted to go back to youth gender dysphoria, and you can cut me off if you feel like you've answered this already. But um, my feeling on the matter is that, you know, when it comes to getting the correct diagnostic um, criteria to move forward with putting a pubescent on puberty blockers, I feel like it's almost like playing Russian roulette with child abuse. Because if you're wrong, the stakes are so high. And I know you've heard this argument uh, probably many times, but I don't want to live in a world where uh, Katie, your, your co-host, becomes Kyle just because a misguided uh, younger girl was not necessarily pushed into something, but pushed into something that they couldn't exactly get right. The and idea of Katie going on, wrong, on testosterone yeah. is pretty terrifying, so I agree with you. It is pretty terrifying. Um, so, and I guess the second part of my question is, sure. if you could get a sex change to save Katie's life, if you had to, <laughs> would you do it? If I, could, if I could actually save Katie's life, yes, I would, I would get various surgeries, if only for financial <laughs> reasons. I, I, I think I reject the... I don't know if I reject the Russian roulette comparison or I just think it's not quite relevant because there's a huge number of medical treatments we embrace that could have bad or permanent side effects. And this whole thing comes down to whether or not kids are well assessed and whether or not, like in the best cases, there's a multidisciplinary team of clinicians who aren't trying to like rush kids on anything and who are very careful about this. And, you know, I, I, a kid who has felt this way for a long time and feels it very strongly and is suffering a great deal I just think the cost-benefit analysis points toward putting them on puberty blockers. I I wouldn't be controversial on the subject if I didn't have some qualms and didn't think there's some shitty medicine going on. Um, but what what part of that do you disagree with? Um, not so much disagree, and I mean I I like you on this um, topic because you're one of the most even-handed writers about it. I guess what I disagree with is that. Um, you're right. We make these cost-benefit analysis on you know high-stakes medical decisions all the time. But I think where where we're at now, where this field and it, it seems to me, and I know you've had some very responsible people who do this work on your podcast before, but it seems to me it's just full of charlatans right now. And at present, yeah. it represents a real danger to, uh, let's be honest, a lot of uh, younger girls who may may just sort of fall into this cell, uh, fall into this thing through some social forces. And it, it may be issues that resolve itself later on. I don't know. It's just something where I think you're directionally correct, but I guess I'm just a little more, a little more to the right, so to speak. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, let's leave it at that. I, I, to me, I, I, the, the point I try to emphasize is that I think a lot of people's concerns would be assuaged if like if they knew their kid was going to like one of the clinicians I've interviewed, uh, Laura Edwards Leeper, Erica Anderson. These are folks who are real pros and who who have seen it all and understand, you know, you this is not something to rush into for a twelve year old. But I, I'm with you in that I think this is a little bit of a wild west or is becoming one. And when I say that I'm I'm echoing the view echoing the views of base, those same clinicians. So um yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. I just think I'm I'm a little bit Maybe less skeptical than you, but thank you, Pat. I hear that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'll I'll hang up. Thank you, Jesse. Andy from Toy Story. How's it going? No, I fucking hate you, Jesse. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but I do have some criticisms. <laughs> Can you hear me? Go for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you, you were talking earlier about um, kind of a perception that you tend to criticize uh, the left over the right, even though it is clear that your position is not. Um, not among those who are on the right, um, which I think is valid, but I think there's kind of a different group that I'm like more concerned about or like a couple different groups that like, aren't like right wing, but are, um, they seem to run counter to your values who you don't, who you seem to like endorse more than maybe I'm comfortable with. And I wanted to kind of know your thoughts on that. Sure. So, um, there's one of the groups is kind of like the broader kind of, um, I guess like IDW adjacent sphere, like, like, um, people like Barry Weiss, who, um, like, I, I don't think that her views are like, or horrible or like, like she's clearly not like a, like a hard right winger, but she does like, I know yeah. she had, like, she seems very credulous of 
kind of like IDW voices. Like um, I think she brought on like Brett Weinstein to talk like anti-vax stuff. She like tends to be pretty sympathetic with like these claims that like the IDW is like saving Western civilization, like those kinds of hyperbolic claims. And I don't really see you pushing back on those kinds of claims. And it's not just her, like this is like a whole yeah. ecosystem of people, but you kind of know who I'm describing. Like if you're, like, I, I think you kind of have an understanding of the group of people I'm describing, who I don't really see you pushing back on that often, if that makes sense. Sure. So, well, I guess a couple of things. One is, I, I, I didn't think her article on the IDW was great. I sort of think it looped together a bunch of different people with, like, from fairly credible people to people who are wackos. Um, I... Well, so I guess the question is like, what, what, what is it I should do? I do not think she's anywhere near so bad that I wouldn't collaborate her, which I did by going on her podcast. I think she just sort of is, is treated maybe as much worse than she is. She, she absolutely writes and says stuff I disagreed with. I, I really didn't like her interview with HR McMaster, who I thought is just sort of an apologist for a completely disastrous war. And I think she should have been more less credulous with them. And I, but I think her problem of sometimes being too credulous with her allies is, is something you could say about a lot of journalists. Well, so maybe the way to make this more concrete is, is your argument that when she does mess up, you sense I'm more muted in my criticism than I am of people who I'm not sort of like loosely affiliated with. Yes. I mean, significantly. I mean, she had, she had on like Brett Weinstein to like promote like anti-vax stuff. Like, fair like w- way after her like uh, article on the idw and like the new york times like fairly recently and yeah. i heard like crickets from kind of your end of the like cultural commentary sphere so yeah. it just it seems like um like these these kinds of people who are maybe in like simultaneously not critical enough of certain voices that maybe agree with them on on cultural issues and and also have this tendency to like whip people up into these like i don't know these kind of ridiculous caricature like this kind of like we're saving western civilization style like us versus them talking points that that seem i think hyperbolic like both both of those aspects of like weiss and people who are kind of in her sphere yeah i think are are valid and maybe constitute more of a danger than it, it really seems like you're often vo- vocalizing if that makes sense yeah well so two things one is after you get off se- send me the link to the interview with brett weinstein because I, I think he's gone a little bit crazy on back stuff and if she had him on the podcast i i just genuinely didn't know about that i i did before the election i went on like this video chat thing with James Lindsay and Brett Weinstein. Yeah, that was the first place I saw you, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, so that, that's just an example. Like, I, I thought that their argument that we should vote for Trump because of wokeism is just, or or just not vote, is is like sort of deranged. And I told them that. And I'm, I still get people telling me that somehow I was proven wrong, which I think is sort of nuts. So... No, you did great there. That's why I listened oh, to you. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> I, I just, I think... Yeah, I, I don't know. I think I have been critis. So let me just say this. I think James Lindsay has gone completely off the deep end. I think Brett Weinstein, um, I was mispronounced his name, uh, self-hating Jew, I guess. Um, he does a range of, I think the vaccine stuff is awful. Uh, he sometimes still makes good points. And I think Barry Weiss is like basically a normal centrist pundit who has the same flaws as any normal centrist pundit. So I just think it's like... I just don't buy that looping. I know this is Barry who did this, but looping them together as like a unified m- movement that I'm supposed to have a stance on. I think I disagree with that. Cause if someone told me, what do you feel about the IDW? I would sort of make a jerk off mo- movement, like both because there's some grifters there. And cause it's like, I don't know. It includes both Sam Harris, uh, who people disagree with, but is not a crazy person and some crazy people. Yeah, for sure. If that makes sense. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think we have some substantive disagreement here. I might like shoot you an email or something because um, I'm actually curious about kind of welcome to. M- maybe more than I have time to vocalize right now. But um, yeah, and then w- just one yeah. like smaller thing is I so on that uh, or sure. on, kind of similar thing is like I, I really enjoyed uh, you on like Brett's podcast talking to like him and James Lindsay. I thought you did great there. But there's like kind of another like 
um, like people, people on like the populist left will also often push a talking point that like, not that the left and the right are the same, but that like left and right politicians are effectively the same, which yeah. I think is just like kind of anti-evidence. Like maybe you don't think left politicians are left enough, but like, I just think that claim is kind of ridiculous on its face. People like, uh, like Glenn Greenwald or like, you know, you know who I'm talking about. I, 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 no, I, I really, I really don't like that at all. Cause I, I just think it requires a Glenn. I agree with Glenn on some stuff. He's not ignorant. I was going to say it really requires ignorance to think there's not a difference between a democratic and a Republican president on everything from who runs the EPA to Supreme court stuff. So yeah, I heard a lot more about this during like the election cycle than like now, but yeah, um, this, yeah. <laughs> okay. No, I, I, I'm with you on that. Uh, thank you, Andy. Well, thanks for talking to me. <laughs> I've listened of, to your course. voice for a number of years now and it's really cool to be able to speak. So thank you. Anytime. Well, you're welcome in these rooms. Uh, from Andy to Andrew. What is up, Andrew? Oh, wait. I followed you rather than making you the next caller. Hey, Andrew. Un uh, unmute yourself if you can. All right. Can you hear me? Okay. I so I have one uh, joke criticism that's also not a joke. I think you're too hard on yourself. As as uh, evidenced by the fact that you've shown up to be thank to you. Be I paid. I paid. I paid. I paid. I paid Andrew to be in the room and to say my criticism is you work too hard and you're too smart. Yes, and too magnanimous uh, to to exactly. open yourself to criticism for a few dozen people here. Um, one small nitpick on the uh, on the prostasia stuff, uh, <laughs> which is such a a great thing to segue to. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I do. I did get the sense when you and Katie were discussing that, that there was uh, a bit of a broad brush applied to those efforts to assist uh, Matt. I, this is the first time I think I've ever said this out loud and haven't just read it on Twitter. Man, but, you're allowed to say pedophiles. Yeah, I don't care. Yeah. It's a controversy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to assist pedophiles. So um, efforts, you know, where there's like a, you know, uh, a somewhat monitored chat room. And then there's like also a networking element it seems like that introduces multiplicative yeah. risk. Whereas I read your, uh, this is actually why I subscribed to your Substack because I just can't not care about this stuff. Um, you then interviewed somebody who uh, does that clinically and the program she yeah. described- Ainsley Heisman, who's worth looking up. She's a yes. Canadian clinician. Yeah, yeah and, that, and that was a fantastic program, by the way, because that, that only took these steps that would be preventative without introducing multiplicative risk. So um, yeah. I hope that's a niche enough uh, critique that it makes sense, but th that that would be my critique. Yeah, and I'm going to give you a slight cop out answer, which is that um, Katie did the bulk of the reporting on like what was actually going on in the chat room and and okay. talked to folks close to it. Um, I you know you would you would want some obviously some monitoring. I, I guess I'm just not sure that if it's like if it's billed as people seem to assume that if you had a chat room that's like this is a place for minor attracted people to support mm -hmm. one another that they would immediately start slinging child porn. I, I think if you were trying to sling or receive, it's more subtle than that. Yeah. It's um, like, you wouldn't want to go to a place like that. Oh, you're, you're saying the critique is more subtle. Yeah. Well, so, so it's, uh, the, the problem is, is it introduces opportunity to your, your, um, your remediation plan. So I, I do risk stuff for a bank. So, so like when, Oh, cool. When you're going to do something to ameliorate a negative consequence, one of the things that you're supposed to be watchful for is like what's called multiplicative risk. Am I doing something to fix this that could actually make it worse? And that, that becomes really important. Gotcha. You can't measure outcomes, which I think you'd agree. You can't really tell how well that stuff is working because you can't just draw on random people off the street um, under false pretenses and ask yeah. them if they're a pedophile. <laughs> Um, that's fair. I know. I absolutely yeah. cannot claim to know for certainty with, with certainty that those chat rooms help. Um, so that, that's right. definitely fair. Part. And, and it doesn't take a lot be, before, you know, just two people working together suddenly introduces, anyway, anyway, it sounds like you agree with it. So I won't, I won't, uh, bring yeah. the, uh, dark topic any longer. And just want to say thank you again for, um, making yourself available for critique here. And, uh, you and Katie have both been, uh, my companions as I've, been working on my house, so much appreciated. Thank you, Andrew. I really appreciate it. Naomi, if you can uh, unmute yourself, you are up. We will be generous and give Naomi 20 more seconds to unmute herself. Worst case, you can jump back in line. Stephanie, you're up next if Naomi uh, 
cannot get unmuted. Stephanie's out of the queue. Back. This is very exciting to watch the queue unfold. It's like the world's most boring sport. All right, Naomi, I got to keep it going. So get back in the line. James is the next caller. James is not. Guys, I said this earlier, but the, the button that unmutes you is apparently very close to and similar to the button that kicks you out of the queue. So just be very mindful of that. Hugh, hit the right button, please. All right. Sorry, guys. I know I want to keep it moving, but there's been there's been some mic issues. Okay, Stephanie, let's make this work. I will drop you. Okay. Oh, Stephanie. wow. Yeah, that is very confusing. Okay, thank you for giving me a second chance. Um. Anyways, hi. Okay. Yeah. Um. Everyone, it's the mic. Hello. Icon. Um. <clears throat> Hi, Jesse. This is great. Thank you for doing this. Um, love the show. And um, the one criticism I would I would I would offer is just um, yeah, it just it just seems um, <laughs> somewhat repetitive. Just it's like a it's like a you know it's like a similar kind of takedown of the woke reaction to so so I'm yeah. I, like that is the criticism is just like um, more fresh ideas more and really more like more solutions like the one episode that i remember there being solutions and there totally maybe more is the one where you interviewed um dr erica anderson and that was great and so i would just love like yep. new fresh and and solution orientedness i agree on the the woke stuff i think some of it is worth covering but i think katie and i are both a little bit tired of it and i think we're taking a turn more toward just like weird internet stories um Anyone, anyone who's in this room who's a listener, let me, let me know if this trajectory sounds right. But there's like a huge amount of untapped internet weirdness. I think about like the podcast Reply All at its best. Uh, I would rather do that than just do the woke outrage of the week. I think there'll always be like woke outrage stories that, that are big enough for us to do. Um, as for the solutions thing, I, I think that's sort of maybe more what this podcast is for. Like I probably would have had potentially had Erica Anderson on here so she could take mm. audience questions. Cause I think this is like for like policy discussions or solutions discussions. I, this strikes me as maybe a better platform for that, but what do you think? Yeah, t- that could be, I mean, and it's, it's totally up to you where you do what, but I do think there are a lot of great things out there. And ter- I'm just right now, I just happen to be thinking of, um, this professor, her name is Loretta Ross. And her whole thing is like, what if instead of calling people out, we called them in yeah. and her whole thing, you know, her whole thing is like learning how to hold people accountable in a loving way, like as if you are interested in their growth and development. And so I think there are great things out there whether you do it here or on the show like up to you but i think there are great yeah there are there are ways to transcend cancel culture and so i would love to i would love to hear more of that thank you stephanie i appreciate the uh the feedback yeah all right james you're the next caller be careful about the mic there we go james you are muted there we go can you hear me now jesse I, I can. do apologize. Uh, big fan of the Substack work. Although I did want to push back, and, and maybe it might be a little raw still, but some of the Tim Pool um, pushback on Twitter, yeah. I, I kind of see where he's coming from in that I, I really came to you and came to Substack in general because of disenfranchisement from mainstream media. And my biggest criticism of mainstream media, of course, is that they, they don't bring on uh, voices that don't agree. They don't do actual journalism in scoping out and finding dissent. Um, and that's really why I, I read Substack. But at the same time, I do take your point about feedback loops. Um, and I, I do understand yeah. that we don't want Substack uh, or independent journalism in general to become uh, just that same feedback loop that the mainstream media is caught in. But I think that it, it struck me a little bit like when Joe Rogan had on um, Alex Jones on his podcast and there was a lot of outcry from the left about um, that not be that just having some propriety to it journalistically. And, and I just think that having those kind of voices on, while I, I don't support Jack Posadek, I think he's kind of an idiot. Um, I think he does have a lot of following and it's important for independent journalists to be able to push back upon or even um, show their work in a different light to their own viewers. And, and I think that's, yeah. I think that's what um, I agree with Tim Pool on. So I, I think my gripe, <clears throat> excuse me. I think my gripe is basically that, um, 
do I think Tim uh, Jack Posobiec should be denied a platform in the vast majority of instances? No, but I do think like if you make the decision of having him on your show to discuss something like the Wakisha attack, which is horrible, and and I think we still don't know much about it. I just think someone like Posobiec who has such a record of just like dishonesty and trolling and not really caring about the difference between fact and fiction you know, you're going to get criticized for it. And and I, I found the Quillette piece on the Australian Northern Territories thing pretty compelling. And I just think Tim sometimes spreads like really rancid misinformation. Uh, I can't say I've watched like hours and hours of his show and maybe he makes some good points. A, lo- a lot of people who say crazy shit make good points along the way. So that could be the case. I just, I'm frustrated by it because it's not hard to like, like if you want to have an informed opinion on something as distant as Australia nor- and the Northern Territories and COVID, someone with Tim's platform can get in touch with an actual expert or with someone on the ground there. And that's, um, you know, that's, that's basically my critique. Yeah, I, I think your point is taken about talking to real experts. I, I just found that piece to be um, especially pertinent to American COVID response today. And, I, and I, I will give you that it's a fine line to walk between feedback loops and, and challenging um, I guess your journalistic predisposition. So um, critique yeah. is, critiques there and your response is great. So uh, thanks, Jesse. Thanks, James. Guys, someone in this chat named Jack sent me a message asking, <laughs> asking you to do my job for me. I think it was Jack Bixby. Jack, send me another message if, if I don't have that right. They couldn't figure out how to add themselves to the queue. I actually don't know. And I don't know how to click out of this room to check without. Basically, I'm commanding all of you to send a message to Jack Bixby telling him how to get in the queue because this is a very professional production so please do that please help out jack bixby james cartwright let's go james cartwright got dropped aa i think people are, <laughs> they need to fix this button issue it's like one button unmutes your mic so you can talk the other button kills your entire family you hit the telephone button to get in the queue it says colin thank you colin all right, Kina, let's see if we can do this. Hi, can you hear me? I can hear you. Hi, Nailed Kina. it. Okay. Um, so I am also not really a critic, so I'll put that caveat out there. But I will say that sometimes I find it a little nerve-wracking to recommend you to friends or send them your Twitter because I feel like you are attacked a lot by a lot of people, usually unfairly, and I totally understand the wanting to like explain and show receipts and do all of that. But as you know, a a viewer and observer, it often feels like, like no matter how justified you are, I think sometimes it can come across as looking a little bit like, all right, what's the point? Like, was that really relevant? Like, did you need to do that? And so I guess I just wonder if you think like, is it worth it or should you just take the high road and be like, all right, those people are obviously not operating in good faith. So like why even engage? I, I, I recently had like a situation where I quote retweeted and yelled at repeatedly someone who I think was like actually having potentially mental health issues based on their behavior. And and I felt Mm. shitty about that. And I think I'm really bad at not rising to Twitter bait. And I think I could do a much better job of picking and choosing my spots of like, if, like if a fellow journalist is like attacking me based on something I never said, I, I, I think that's maybe a situation to push back. And I think it's just speaking pragmatically, it's beneficial in many ways to like push back aggressively as long as it's not like too mean, but you're right. I, I get in fights with random with randos, especially a lot of academic randos for some reason. I, I don't think that makes me look good at all. And I've gotten that feedback from other people and I need to, uh, Find a way to be less pathetic on that and on that and so many other fronts. <laughs> well, it would it would help me um, to send your Twitter to other friends. I would I would appreciate it personally. <laughs> I can't even imagine your friends who, who go to my Twitter and the first tweet is like cool guy four twenty sixty nine is completely misinterpreting my twenty seventeen <laughs> tweet. Yeah. So point taken. Well, I will just say one quick other thing that I think is funny is that I recently sent your podcast on the Michael Hobbs stuff to a friend who loves his podcast. And she was like, oh, you know that the the mainstream media universally loathes this guy, right? As if like that would make me not like you. So I thought that that was a, a, a telling question from my friend on where she sits there on go. this. <laughs> I take it as a – it's so weird to even think about. But uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, thank you, Kina. Yeah, thanks, Jesse. All right, Hugh, let's see if we can get you on here. I'm making the next caller. 
Hugh. Hey, I think think I got it this time. Hey. Yeah, the, the button isn't red. It uh, it goes to, to black again. <laughs> uh, anyway, not that important. Um, so I kind of just going back to the um, the Brett Weinstein ivermectin thing. Um, and so I, I, I read your book. First of all, very big fan of, of all your work. Um, and and I read you. read your book book and then i also kind of read Stuart ritchie's book after which is quite similar topics so good his book's um, great and, and and i'm not trying to diminish your book or whatever but i felt that after reading his book the explanation of like the fraudulent stuff regarding the ivermectin research was really quite clear um and you probably knew that I, it feels like or at least you probably had your suspicions that this was the explanation um but when you discussed it on your podcast, you were kind of like a little bit hesitant to wade in. Um, and it feels like you, uh, this is not like criticizing you for, you know, you should have helped people or anything like that, but you probably did actually know that there was a lot of fraudulent research out there. And I, I think that in hindsight, that might've actually been quite useful for, for people on the podcast to know. And I'm just curious to know why you didn't suggest that to people or... Oh, you mean on ivermectin in particular? I, I, yeah, kind of, you know, you, you guys touched on the fact that Brett Weinstein was going crazy, but didn't really yeah. say, you, you didn't like impart your own uh, expert knowledge or whatever. Oh, gotcha. So this is going to sound weird to anyone who is in this and knows me as like a blowhard who can't stop tweeting, but there's a lot of subjects where I just don't know enough to like express anything but the most hesitant opinions. And I a know almost nothing about medical science and B haven't followed the ivermectin stuff at all. So basically what I've tried to do is like when someone writes up a good piece explaining what a disaster this area of research has been and, and the fraudulence and, and just awfulness, I, I do try to surface it. But um, I think there's a case to be made that I should have done like a big segment or newsletter on it. It just, it, it seemed like one of those areas that was well covered by others. Um, but I can definitely see like making the argument that I, that I should have done more on it. Yeah. And, and certainly again, not like accusing you of anything, but from my own internet bubbles, it actually felt that there was not a lot of crossover between people who were clearly explaining that like, Oh, it's possible for there to be a large amount of quote unquote research and it not be valid. Um, and the, yeah. you, you mostly have kind of newspapers and things saying like, Oh, there's no evidence for this or this, that, the other, but, but it doesn't really, impart enough knowledge on people to be like oh if a lot of people are just trying to push questionable papers you can have through selection bias like you know something that seems like evidence to people not just yeah. that, that's one of the things about like a certain type of debunking it's like people people say oh there's no research for this but then if people look it up they will appear to see a ton of research and they don't know how how many bad papers there can be so i, I think these are all fair points and it just comes down to um I'm sure there was a very important controversy that week about a bisexual furry at a convention that Katie and I had to cover. So you know how it is. Yeah. Oh yeah, and I, and I didn't mean to didn't mean to make it sound like criticism or whatever. I was just more just curious on. Yeah, no, but just to be clear, it was entirely from not not following it closely enough. Uh, that was really it. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, love your work. Thanks very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Jenny, I am making you the next caller. Do not hit the kill my family button. Hit the unmute button. Hello, Jesse. Hi, Jenny. Great show. I'm enjoying it. I have watched Tim Pool since his Occupy Wall Street days with interest. And I thought your piece today was a little bit dismissive, kind of implying that he was just a grifter doing it for the money. But I did find it was interesting that Peter Navarro, who was on the Trump team, whose book just dropped this week in Trump time, chose Tim Pool and Luke Rudowski. He went on their show to talk about his book. And so at least Mr. Navarro takes Tim seriously as a journalist and the things they were talking about were important. And so I wondered what you thought about all that. Um, yeah, I mean, Tim has a huge platform. He has more than a million subscribers. He, I was invited to go on his show once and um, I, I was torn. I ended up just being distracted and not making an affirmative decision. Um he, he has a big platform and he's taken seriously. I just, I think he should be more careful when spreading certain types of rumors. And I, I will. Did you see the videos that are out there from the indigenous people in, in Australia? They've sent out an SOS, a literal SOS saying we are being locked down. We are being forced medicated with this vaccine. Have you seen those videos? Cause I have. 
my understanding from the Colette article was that that was sort of a fringe group that wasn't actually in the same area. But if you if you want to send me a message with particular videos, I'll check them out. Well, it's an interesting time because many of us are concerned that door-to-door forced vaccines are kind of around the corner. And I don't think that would, there's no way that would ever happen in the States. It just wouldn't. If it's really happening in Australia, it's a little bit, makes some of us a little bit nervous. Yeah. Well, so, look, if you send me whatever you send me, I'll at least take a look at it. I just, I do not think, I think anyone telling you, you should fear this is around the corner in the States is either misguided or trying to scare you because there are a million constitutional legal reasons they could not come door to door and force vaccines on anyone. But, but send me what you got and I'll take a look. Thank you. Oh, sure, sure. Go one ahead. more, yeah. one more question. Um, how do you feel about the new variant and the new booster? And when do you think that will stop? Will that stop when we have 10 variants and 10 boosters? I mean, and, and are you prepared to go the distance with all of these iterations of the vaccine? I just got, I just got my like generic booster. Um, I'm just going to keep an eye on it and try to keep a skeptical mind as always. But I, I, I got all the vaccines whenever I could, and I've been living a pretty normal life since then. And I'm, I'm grateful for them, but yeah, I could for all, I can't speak to a situation where there are a million variants and a million vaccines, but I hope we don't get there. Well, I like Brett Weinstein's, is that how you say it? Weinstein's work. I think he's doing important work. And I think he's a voice that we should be open-minded enough to listen to rather than just dismiss him as having gone crazy. Fair enough. Thank you. And send me whatever you want to send me. Next caller is John. Hey, Jesse, can you hear me? I can okay, hear you. Great. I'm yeah. I'm John, also known as Jack Bixby. I was I was messaging you earlier about the app. <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't able to help. <laughs> no worries. They literally helped this uh, man. I'm a big fan of this. Yeah. Uh, big fan of the pod. A big fan of this format. Except I've gotten dropped about six times now trying to uh, get in the queue here. So my recommendation for people is don't click any buttons except the call button and then the mic button once because uh, I've I've gotten repeatedly booted now. Uh, anyway, so I, I wanted to. Um, ask you a question in a little bit of a different direction. Um, so it seems like you're pretty far left economically, correct me if, if this is wrong, uh, but I'm sort of a uh, libertarian. I'm, I'm finishing up an economics uh, grad degree and I don't see a lot of support for the far left of the economic spectrum, you know, including, but, but not limited to uh, socialism. Uh, so just kind of wanted to, wanted to pop in and register some disagreement. Um, I've never seen like, you know, a, like a write-up of the case for socialism that I found convincing. Uh, so I'd love to hear anything you have on sort of what informed, uh, your, your views on that. If I'm characterizing them accurately. Yeah. Well, so look, I, I've, I've joked, I had Ben Burgess on, who's a, a philosopher and a, he's really, he's great. He wrote a book about how we should disagree civilly with people. And, and, you know, some people on the left hate him for that. Um, I basically tried to get him to convince me to be a socialist. I, I'm not a socialist. I think socialism in like its purest forms tends to fail. I, I'm sort of like, first of all, I'm not really smart enough to have strong opinions on this. I just generally want us to be a little bit more like Europe on most fronts. Like if we could get to, I spent some time in Germany, if we could get to basically the German system with regard to like poverty or inequality, I'd be happy. If we get to Scandinavia, I'd be great. And it's obviously apples to oranges for a million reasons, not least of which is like federalism and and how diverse and big and noisy a country we are. But I just, I generally see there being a role for smart government policy in uh, mitigating, you know, the force of luck. Cause I, I just think almost everything is luck. There's some stuff I agree with, uh, libertarians on I, more and more, like whatever, whenever I read about like licensing and, and cartels, you know, from the American medical association to these, like, you have to, you know, get hundreds of hours of training to be a hairdresser in some state. I'm probably exaggerating that, but not by much. Th- those are areas like policy areas where I think libertarians have plenty of good insights. Um, I just I'm not really confident that markets uh, can deliver like crucial stuff to people who need it desperately. So I guess that's my philosophy, if that makes sense. Yeah, thanks. Uh, no, appreciate it. And I'll just add that uh, some of the sort of libertarian uh, stuff that I've gotten more sucked into recently is uh, just how sort of the FDA has has dealt with COVID, uh, you know, getting tests out and getting vaccines out and really seems like a case where uh 
yeah, we're we're just in a situation where we could have this medicine out a lot sooner. But anyway, yeah, thanks thanks for uh, thanks for the answer. Thank you, John. AA. Hello, hello. Can you hear me? Hey, I can. Hey, hey Jesse, big fan. I've been a fan of you since the beginning of the podcast. Uh, I think you do a great job of not being an insane person, but also being anti woke. I feel like I've been following for anti woke stuff for like a decade now. And it seems like half the people are insane or at some point become insane. And it, it just kind of, I don't know, I guess it's conspiracy thinking or whatever kind of drives people the wrong direction. But I think you've done a great job of being self-critical. This type, this thing particularly, like sort of reflecting you. on yourself and facing criticism. Anyway, my enduring critique of you from the show is I, I, I don't like how you... I don't know what your position is on this now and if you've changed, but one thing following the show, you've had a tendency to opine on these instances of violence, like, you know, these shootings or, you know, like police uh, interactions. And I don't think you're really qualified to, to have as a strong opinion as you do. And I think that there really is a degree of, of mass, the degree of complexity and technicality to these instances that kind of requires someone to actually know what they're talking about, as opposed to someone on their, yeah. their armchair and just telling you what they, they see from a, a video, for instance. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I mean, uh, you are very much going to want to listen to the episode we're dropping Monday or earlier if you're a, a premium subscriber, because it's on exactly that subject. And I had an interview with a police use of force, force expert earlier today. Um, it's going to be an episode that I, I think will piss some people off, but I'm, I'm, I think it's, I don't want to say necessary. Nothing we produce is necessary, but I think it'll help a lot of people. And it, it addresses exactly what you're saying. And the short, of, the short answer is I agree with you, that critique. Okay, great. If you ever want me to give you ideas for podcasts in the future, I guess I can do it. You can hit me up. I guess I have. Well, so, I, so, I, will I, you just send me yeah. an email and remind me that we, we talked here? Sure, I guess I could. Uh, I wanted to ask you, though, because I heard you recently, your appearance on Barry Weiss, and I, you mentioned the Jacob Blake shooting as shocking. I think that was the, the wording you used. Uh, do you have an opinion on that now? I mean, do you feel like it was justified? Do you feel like it was, it was a shocking shooting that deserved criticism? Or how, do, how do you feel about this at this, this time? I would refer you to my previous comment about how you should definitely listen to the next episode and leave it at that. Okay. So you have, okay. So basically I'm behind the April on this. No, no, no. <laughs> the next, the episode's not out yet, but it's on, it's on. I understand. But I, I'm talking about saying, I'm talking about saying that you've already dealt with in some way that I have no way of knowing. Oh yeah. No, 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 no. This is you, no, it's I a perfectly cool. Yeah. yeah and what I'm saying is it's a perfectly good question. And I, I just don't want to give away this the episode yeah. I'm producing now, but it's on, it's on the Jacob Blake shooting. Yeah. And you, you can tell Katie that I feel the same way about her. She's maybe worse than you on this. But Katie's we'll, just the worst we'll, in general, to be honest. Yeah. Another critique of you is you should try to be funnier or just not that funny on the podcast and maybe be like more like Katie on that front. But anyway, <laughs> I, yeah, I think, I think you're great. I, I'll keep following you and please keep not being not crazy. And thank uh, you. It's, it's a challenge to be not crazy, but I'm going to uh, try to keep doing it. Okay. Thanks. All right. Adam, you're up. So, hey, Adam, before you say anything, we have James in the queue. I'm going to leave the queue at that, and then I'll just give some sort of closing thoughts about how this went. Uh, but, Adam, if you want to unmute yourself, don't, there we go. Yeah, J- Jesse, if you could just be funnier, I think that's, 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 that's good. <laughs> how many enjoyed, podcasters does it take uh, to screw it? <laughs> I enjoyed that criticism. Um, so, so, Mike, I've got a question because I'm fascinated around this idea of, of – um, of journalist media personalities kind of pandering, you know, saying something that grabs a crowd yeah. and then pandering to them. But before I get to that, though, I just wanted to push back on one of the the, the earlier callers. Like I, I, I've I've read, been reading a lot and hearing a lot about you know Australia becoming this police state and you know door to door mandated vaccines, demonstrable nonsense, 
absolute nonsense. <laughs> I sit here in sunny Sydney, and that's just that's just literally not true. Australia is like anywhere else where there's this weird fringe meeting of the far left and the far right who who you know who who spread information that's that's just just nonsense anyway i just i thought i'd no that that, that's useful because i i my knowledge of it really is restricted to the quillette piece but i found the quillette piece convincing and i I think my reaction to tim pool spreading that is like there's there's different types of misinformation and that's particularly harmful to say that in this distant country they're rounding indigenous people up like a concentration camp that's horrible so i appreciate your uh on the ground uh dispatch from there yeah and and i think i think there's a there's people just i i don't understand this this um kind of uh, mistaken restrictions for some kind of you know, crushing of somebody's freedom. There are restrictions, you know, we're in the middle of a yeah. pandemic. There are restrictions, live with it, you know, and people just, mm-hmm. just take it to the anti degree. Anyway, that wasn't my question. I just wanted to kind of uh, give that thing. My question again is about that, that this idea of pandering to a, to a, a, cr- a crowd base, you know, the audience that you've created and, and, and you've spoken uh, really quite well about it before. This isn't a criticism, but it's, it is more of a question, but, how do you stop yourself going the other way? So how do you, you, you know, you, you've obviously got this in you. And, and I could tell from recent blocks and reporters, you know, you, th- there's a reticence to sort of talk about certain things, probably through the fear. And I don't want to put words or thoughts in your, your mind, but through the fear of being kind of pigeonholed as, you know, this thing for the right, you know, like a yeah. Dave Rubin or something like that. But how do you stop yourself going the other way, going so far from that fear of or that worry that you're going to be pigeonholed in that way. What steps do you put in place? I think it's just like a more organic process than that. Cause it's sort of like, you're sort of just asking like how I decide what to cover and what criteria I would use to not cover something. And it's complicated. And there's definitely some part of me. I mean, this episode I'm, I'm doing on the Jacob Blake shooting. It, it took, a long time because I just did not want to wade into that because, you know, someone was paralyzed and it's a horrible story and it was treated as like just her horrific violence. And yeah. absolutely part of me was scared. There've been these other blow up stories like the, the uh, it's a whole other thing, but the coven and Catholic kids, um, maybe international folks in the audience might not know about that. You can just Google it. I, I was absolutely scared to really speak my mind on those and I, I try to avoid being scared and i think the paywall frankly is helpful for that because like you just don't have to deal with it but um i think you're right that it goes in both directions you can you can either fall down the rabbit hole and get a little bit radicalized or you can be too scared and sort of not say anything interesting so i don't really have an answer for you which is why i'm rambling but i think it's a legitimate concern <laughs> Thanks, Jesse. I appreciate well, I appreciate the work you do, and and I agree with the other call. If you can just continue to try to be a bit funnier, that'd be, that'd be <laughs> very awesome. helpful. Thanks, mate. James, you are the last caller. Uh oh. If James if James can hit the unmute, he's the last caller. There Ooh. we go. Hello. Hey. Hi. Um, I'm glad I'm the last caller because I think this is the most important thing uh, you're going to have to address today. Uh, I like your work because it seems very evidence based. You seem to take a very uh, sort of um, objective view of things um, and you seem very well informed. But it, this is why I was horrified um, a while back listening to Blockton reported uh, when you seem to sort of dismiss uh, a certain topic out of hand and it just seemed very, very unjesty the way you handled it. I'm talking, of course, about your views on ska punk. <laughs> um, I think you referred to as the dregs of, of culture or something like that. I listened um, to a lot of ska punk as a teenager. I, I, my, one of my first shows was Goldfinger. I listened to Real Big Fish, Catch 22, Streetlight Manifesto. This was all like, these are, I, I hope no one in the audience knows what we're talking about. These are sort of this, not the cool underground band. Oh, Big D in the Kids <laughs> Table, I saw live, a Boston band. No, ska punk is great. So oh, this fantastic. is like when I talk shit about gamers. It's still all about being a self-hating gamer and a self-hating ska punk fan. But what, what are your what are your favorite bands in that genre? Yeah, no, I'm a big fan. Yes, of oh my games. god, like that same old. I'm not going to sing, but yeah. Oh yes, exactly. Well, you just want sometimes just more wear Hawaiian shirt and, and feel a bit melancholic. This know? is a song. This is a song about drinking beer with your friends and trying to meet girls at the mall, dude. What's, what what else do? What more do you need? <laughs> 
Uh, one last thing. Check out the Interrupters. They're a modern, I tell you, they're a new band. They're not, they've been going back 10 years, but I'm old now, so they're new to me. But they're an excellent ska punk band. Check them out. The Interrupters? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... The Interrupters. I think I'm going to go to a bar to do work after that. I'm going to listen to them on my way. Thank <laughs> you very much, James. I appreciate it. All right. Cheers. All right, guys. I have some closing thoughts because this was interesting. Um, I really need to email myself the name of the ska punk band. So we got an hour of good conversation and some of the points were good. These were clearly not mostly people who like had, you know, there was some criticism, but it was not people who are like really unhappy with my work. So I think, I think I should do this once in a while. This was definitely not like a failed proof of concept, but it makes sense. Like the sorts of people who would download an app to come hear me talk in a room are not the people who are like angriest at me or have the most like, "Mm." criticism so i think it was an interesting experiment but i'll probably just schedule occasional talks with people who disagree with me fervently but who are like smart and fair so that we can have an engaging back and forth because i think if i just i love talking to you guys and a lot of you made good points but you guys are not uh well i don't want haters per se but most of you like me that's why you're here and i need to find people who maybe don't like me as much if that makes sense but um I guess we'll leave it at that. I really appreciate you guys joining me and definitely spread the word. You can always send me a message if you have feedback, but tell others about this podcast and about Colin and about uh, Judaism and gaming and ska punk and all the other good things in life. Thank you guys so much. Bye.